Well, today we're just going to look for a brief moment at God's word together. Ephesians chapter 3, you can take out your worship guide. There are no blanks there, but you can write down the three thoughts that I'll have this morning as we look at the church of Ephesus. We have studied this incredible book of Ephesians before. We've looked at the church of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. We've looked at Paul's purpose in writing this epistle to these believers. He was, of course, very instrumental in founding the church in his third missionary journey. We uh, learn about that in Acts chapter 19. The, um, I guess I should read the key text here that we're looking at today. We're going to really look at the whole chapter. We're not going to study every single verse and every single word, of course, because this is going to be a brief message before our annual meeting. But let's read together verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3. It's there on the screen. It's actually engraved into a granite slab at our front entrance. If you're a guest and you walked in today and you caught that, these two verses are engraved on the granite slab of our front entrance. So let's read this out loud together, shall we? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The title of the message today as we look at God's word, as we look to God's word for our um, source of encouragement, our hope, instruction, the title of the message today is Exceeding Abundantly Throughout All the Ages, a church with incredible, eternal potential. And so we've read these verses. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll look to the text this morning. Father, thank you that our hope springs eternal. Thank you that this life is not the only life that we have hope in Christ. We thank you that our hope rests and is anchored in something beyond this reality and something that is really real. This, this, this life is only a dream. It's only a passing vapor into something far greater. And Father, we, we know this, we've perceived this with the eyes of faith. And Father, we pray that you would bless our time now as we look to your word for strength, encouragement, guidance, exhortation, comfort. And then Father, that we would look to the future as a church family together, understanding that just like the church of Ephesus had incredible eternal potential, we do too. We have incredible potential here in our midst because your spirit lives within us as believers you are working within our church and we're thankful that we get to be a part of that so speak to our hearts now we pray in jesus name all god's people said amen potential have you ever been told that you have potential i remember growing up teachers tried to see that potential in me and coax it out coaches tried to see that potential and coax it out. Now, I don't think I had a lot of potential with baseball. I, I tried my hand at, at a little league baseball. In fact, if you uh, pay my mom enough money, actually, you don't have to pay her anything. She'll just offer it right up. She'll show you my nine-year-old nine baseball photo. I, I, uh, I remember that baseball photo. I'm quite proud of it. I thought that I would have that be a priceless heirloom one day when I made it into the majors, right? Jeremy, I mean, Jeremy played baseball. He understands that world. Um, I, I thought that would be a priceless heirloom because I would be, you know, like Hank Aaron one day and, and uh, break the home run record. 
that didn't work. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of my nine-year-old baseball photo. My, my mom will have to show you that with my big old thick glasses and all. But anyway, uh, you know, my, my, my baseball coach tried to encourage me and tell me I had potential probably in baseball that I didn't have. But, you know, teachers tell us we have potential. Coaches tell us we have potential. Our parents tell us we have potential. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it fun to be a parent? It's so much fun to be a parent and to see that child growing up and to understand they've got potential. And I can't help but think that Paul had similar feelings in his heart towards the church of Ephesus because he literally had been the spiritual parent to many of these believers. He was the one that that was able, by God's grace, to uh, see this church established. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we see that this city of Ephesus was the focus of his first missionary journey. I think that verse is up there, guys, Acts 19, 1. So as I mentioned those, you can just click through them. You don't have to wait for me. So this city was the focus of Paul's third missionary journey. And what you see here is that this was a place with potential. This was a place with potential. If there was any church that had potential in the first century, it was the church of Ephesus. They had incredible potential, as you're about to see. And so we learned that this, number one, was a place with potential. This is just some introductory thoughts. It was a place with potential. This was the city of of the focus of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul would end up investing over three years in this city. Um, It was really a strategic location that he could use to be a launching point to the rest of the known parts of the world from the city of Ephesus there. Um, It was a huge city. For that day. Uh, Back in those times, uh, this was a very large city, over 300,000 people as a part of the population. Um, It would be a very similar sized city back in that time to a city like New York City or Los Angeles today. It was one of the largest cities of that known time. It was a cosmopolitan city, it was a city with many intersections of industry, art, finance, uh, kind of like Wall Street, you know, uh, education. All of these things intersected in the city of Ephesus. In fact, in Acts 19, verses 9 through 10, you see that Paul had for a few months tried to reach people through the Jewish synagogue in the city of Ephesus. And then after he gets tired of all the rebellion and the rejection there in the synagogue, he transitions into a college campus. He goes to the school of Tyrannus, and he, and he develops, I guess, the first college ministry. And he shares the gospel for, I believe, over two years. And this continued by the space of two years. And so this was an incredible place that had potential. It was, it was a harbor city right on the shores of the Aegean Sea. And so it was really a cross-section of, of most of the known world of that time. The uh, temple of Artemis was, was here. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was twice as high and as deep as the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., if you've ever been there. This was two times bigger. Um, Artemis, of course, was a, uh, was a, was a, was a pagan deity. And so the city of Ephesus was wholly given to idolatry and immorality. Um, Yes, the city was rich in history, culture, art, education, ideas, wealth, but it was pagan. It didn't know God. And so Paul would very intentionally spend a long time in this city, go deep into this city to share the life-changing truth of the gospel. And so we see a place that had potential, but number two, we see a people that had incredible potential. Because as these people were reached with the gospel, we see that they were walking in deep darkness. But Paul had the light of the glorious gospel of grace. And so there was great opportunity here. You know, there's always great opportunity wherever the light of the glorious gospel of grace pierces the darkness. 
Yes, the days are dark. Yes, it breaks our heart and it stirs us to righteous indignation to see what we see on the screens of our TVs, our phones, and our computers. But the darker the night, the brighter the light and the opportunity to give the gospel to needy souls. And that's what Ephesus was. Ephesus was a dark culture. They did not know God. They were were very immoral, pagan, wholly given to idolatry. The city was wholly given to idolatry, it says in the book of Acts. But Paul realized that there was great opportunity here. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. I love these verses. It says that Paul's purpose was to tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost for a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And yes, there's many adversaries. Hello, we're in a spiritual battle for the souls of humanity. And so there's going to be warfare. There's going to be a fight. Satan's not going to give up souls easily. But you know what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Paul had this perspective. He, he had such a perspective on, on, the, on the mission that he had been called to, the hope of the gospel. And so he said, listen, this is a place with potential. These are people with potential. There's a great door of opportunity open here. Paul didn't whine about the paganism or the obstacles in front of him. He acknowledged those adversaries, but he knew his God was greater, and he knew that the message that he had to share with these people would transform their lives. Now, here's what's incredible. Many historians believe that close to one-third, 100,000 people, ended up getting saved in those few short years in the city of Ephesus. That's incredible. A third of the city turned to Jesus in saving faith. Now, obviously, then we would know that the church of Ephesus just wasn't in one location. This was a multi-site church throughout the city. In fact, there were many elders. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17, you'll find that Paul, as he was passing by Ephesus, he wanted to stop and encourage the brethren just one more time because he knew he probably would never see them again on this side of eternity. And it says that many of the elders of the church came to Miletus from Ephesus. And so this was a a city with many churches that had been established, being led by, by pastors, elders. And And so this was a multi-site church. There was no single location in the city that could house 100,000 people. The largest meeting area in that time, in that location, would have been the Colosseum. It could hold 25,000. And so there were several elders, pastors in this city. But I want you to look at Acts 19, verses 18 through 20, because this really does sum up what God was doing in the city of Ephesus. Again, a place with potential, a people with potential. It says, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, many of them also which used curious arts. They were involved in pagan witchcraft. They were involved in all these things, demonic influence. But the light pierced the darkness. They brought their books and burned them all before all the men. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver over $500,000 of today's money, and of course that would have been a lot more back then, was destroyed so mightily. Can we just read that last verse, that, that, that last sentence together, underlined, ready? One, two, three. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Mm. That's what I want to see. Is that what you want to see? That's what I want to see God continue to do in and through us. 
You see, there was a spiritual awakening of epic proportions that broke out in the city of Ephesus. Now, this all happened right just before 60 AD. And, and then about four years later, Paul is in prison. So after this awakening, after this incredible planting of the church at Ephesus with many, many different pastors being trained. Of course, Timothy was one of the main leaders of the church of Ephesus. And Paul would write to Timothy. Four years later, Paul is imprisoned and he becomes burdened about his children in the faith. Children who he knew had incredible potential. They were in an incredible place of potential. They were a great people of potential. God had transformed many of their lives from darkness to incredible light in just a moment. And so he writes with this heartbeat that he wants the city, the church of Ephesus, to realize and live up to their potential of what God could do and would do through them. You know, I thought about that in our own church. I know God looks at us and he has to say, wow, there go people who have great potential as they live out the spirit-filled life, as they follow me. You might come in here this morning and think, I don't have much potential. I don't, well, <laughs> I say all that to say that we don't need to listen to the devil's lies. Of course he doesn't want us to think we have potential. Of course he doesn't want us to think that one person can make a difference. Of course he doesn't want us to think that a, the, that a collection of 125, 150 believers can make a difference. I'm glad Paul didn't get self-focused and thinking, well, I'm just one person. I'm not going to make a difference. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that the apostles didn't take that approach. They understood who their God was, and they, know that if, and, they, and they knew that if God was for them, who could be against them? That they could do all things through Christ, which strengthens them. And so we see that this church, the city of the, the church of Ephesus, had great potential. And so do we. And the church of Ephesus as we're going to see here in just a few moments as we look at this passage together, the church of Ephesus would realize and live up to their potential if they understood three key truths that I believe Paul brings out in this passage. Three things and we'll be done. Number one, Paul wanted these people to be reminded of their position in Christ. If you look at verses 1-7, we're not going to read all of this together today, but he starts out, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. So Paul is talking about a mystery. He's talking about something that was concealed before purpose and plan of God, but has now been revealed. And what is that mystery? He says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So there was this progressive revelation that was unfolding from Genesis up to this time, but is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So Paul says that this mystery was given to him to unveil that the Gentiles and Jews would be brought together one in Christ and called the church. 
an incredible truth. It really is. Because what Paul is pointing out here is he wants them to understand their potential resides in the fact of who they are in Christ. They no longer see themselves based on geographical boundaries or societal stati. Status is stati. He, he, he no longer wants them to view people according to the flesh. He says over in, um, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, we know no man according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. And he's pointing out to them that their potential would be realized as they rooted themselves and reminded themselves of their position in Christ. In fact, this whole epistle is fascinating because chapters 1 through 3, Paul just continues to drive home the indicatives of the gospel, the positional reality of who they are in Christ. In Christ alone, this is who you are. And then chapters 4 through 6, he talks about the, the, uh, the imperatives, the way to live out that position. And so he says here that, that, that their position is rooted in the gospel. Notice at the end of verse 6, he says that you might be partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And so this was an incredible truth. For us, it doesn't register a lot because we're not thinking in first century terms. But for these people, many of the first century Christians started out Jews. They were Jews in their heritage, in their culture. From Pentecost. But very quickly, Gentiles started to come to know Christ. Peter has that vision of the, of, of the food, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, bacon floating down on a sheet. But anyway, Peter has this view of these unclean foods, and, and, and God's using that as an illustration to show that Jew and Gentile both are a part of what God is doing. Paul clearly had this revelation, and so he's saying here that the Gentiles also share in the spiritual eternal blessings of the new covenant. This was, this was concealed in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm sure the Jews for centuries read Genesis 12 verse 3 and Genesis 15 and said, how will through Abraham all the nations of the earth be blessed? Because the seed of Abraham, not Isaac, Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, would come to this earth and he would bring Jew and Gentile together. And so the good news of the gospel is we as Gentiles are included in the covenant, we're included in the blessings, we're included in the promise, we're included in the deliverance, we're included in the hope, we're included in the salvation, we're included in the eternal joy. Simeon had a glimpse of this in Luke chapter 2 when he understood that this wasn't just the glory of the Jews, but the glory of all people, Gentiles as well. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. That's our position. We are a joint heir with Christ. And so, how does this inform our lives today? This is great theological truth. Remember your position in Christ. Well, it's a wonderful position because here's the reality. How many of you have ever felt like you're an outsider? How many of you have ever felt like you weren't welcome? How many of you have ever felt like you were the reject, the black sheep, the social pariah, the one that nobody wanted in the group, the one that was picked last on the pickup game of basketball? You see, what this does is it shatters even what we're facing today on TV every day. The haves and the have-nots, these folks with a certain color of melanin in their skin, these with not a certain color or level of melanin in their skin. 
it was a big issue in the first century. Jew, Gentile, it was a racial issue. It was a religion issue. It, there was all those things wrapped up into one. There was a lot of prejudice. Gentiles were looked as, as, at as second-class individuals. But what Paul is telling them here is that Jew and Gentile are no longer separated with this middle wall of partition. No, we've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into a new organism called the church that was not there in the Old Testament. It's now fully revealed and it was instituted at the day of Pentecost. And so in Christ, you are no longer an outsider. You're no longer an outcast. You're no longer excluded in Christ. The whole world has the opportunity to be included. That's the message of the gospel. There's no more haves and have-nots. There's no more rich and poor. There's no more uh, uh, patriarchal versus matriarchal society. You know, there's, there, there's none of that. No more of this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks. In Christ, we are all one. Before Christ, you were an outsider, but now you've been made accepted in the beloved. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You're a joint heir, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. And I think what Paul was saying here in these first six or seven verses is he was saying, keep in focus the position that you have in Christ. Let that inform how you live out what God is working in you. The second thing he wanted them to keep in focus as they realized their potential, we, number two, their purpose for Christ. Their purpose for Christ. Look at verse 7. Paul says, this, this incredible reality which is made possible by the gospel, I was made a minister, verse 7, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, Unto me, who am the less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Circle verse 10. We're going to come back to it. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So Paul wanted them to see first their position in Christ, but number two, he wanted them to realize and see their purpose for Christ. Verses 7, 10, and 11 jump out to me as being key, but even into verse 13, we see that he says here, I'm writing this so that you do not faint. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you. There's a bigger picture here. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I am suffering for the cause of Christ. But keep your focus. Keep your perspective. Keep the mission in view. Realize the purpose that you have for Christ. You see, Paul clearly understood his purpose. He understood his calling. He says, listen, I was made a minister of this incredible truth. I have given my life to this calling, to this mission, mission, to this vision. And so their purpose for Christ, Paul clearly understood his purpose. And Paul desired for the Ephesian church to understand their purpose as well. 
He says, listen, I'm not quitting. I might be in prison, but this has happened to me for the furtherance of the gospel. He always saw his obstacles as another opportunity. Paul had, oh, if we as Christians would get this in view, that we would take any obstacle we're given and somehow flip it for an opportunity. Ouch, that hurt my right big toe. Because the reality is, as many times, we get stuck on the obstacle. But Paul had such a clear purpose. He did not let any obstacle get in his way. In fact, he was able to take the obstacles and turn them into some of the greatest opportunities he had ever had. Isn't it cool? Growing up, do you remember when your mom was able to take the worst kind of day and make it good? You know? It's like, if it's raining outside and y'all had this big day plan to go to the playground, I, I, I just remember many times my mom had this gift of being able to take a terrible day and make it great. We as Christians need to learn how to do that. You know, we're going to continue to face opposition, obstacles, but maybe we turn those into opportunities. And, and I think that's what Paul was driving at here. He was saying, listen, I know my purpose. I know what I've been called. And Ephesians, do not forget your purpose. Don't faint in the day of adversity, don't faint at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, here's what's incredible. Because as you look back in these verses before verse 13 that ends this thought, you look back and you see what the Ephesian church was engaged in. They were engaged in the same mission that Paul had, just in a different way. But they were another voice there in the city of Ephesus. Paul could no longer be there. That's why he had invested three years. He had trained. He had discipled. And then he left them there to continue the unfolding of this mystery. To continue this message of the gospel, of who they were in Christ. And notice a couple of verses here. It says, Verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now look at verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. And here's a fascinating verse. I was reminded of this this week. I hope it encourages you. Verse 10, to the intent, for the purpose of, so Paul is saying this mystery has been unfolded. The gospel is now on full display so that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Let that verse sink into our souls for just a moment. Do you know what God is saying here? He is saying that the best teacher on earth to the angels is the church of the manifold wisdom of God. Principalities and powers that if we were to see, we would all probably cower in fear. Every time you see people have an encounter with an angel in the Bible, they're deathly afraid. We, the church are the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms. In fact, it says over in 1 Peter that the angels look into these issues of the salvation of the souls of men with great interest. And so we have a purpose, a purpose that involves actually teaching lessons to the angelic realm of the manifold wisdom of God. Wow. 
And so let me ask you, do you have a purpose? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why God has you on this earth? Do you know why he saved you, why he redeemed you? Listen, there is nothing more satisfying in life than knowing that you are here for a purpose and that you are fulfilling that purpose for which God created you, saved you, called you, and has equipped you. And in fulfilling your purpose in life, you are teaching others about God. You're even teaching the spiritual realms about who he is. Isn't that incredible? And so he says here, listen, church, if you're going to be effective, if you're going to realize the potential, the great potential that is there residing in you, in this opportunity, in the city of Ephesus, don't forget your position in Christ. Number two, don't forget your purpose for Christ. But number three, do not forget your power through Christ. He's already alluded to it. Paul is kind of like other preachers I know. They're very easily distracted and they get off on these theological islands of truth. In fact, in this passage, we've actually seen a parenthetical statement from chapter, uh, or chapter 3, verse 1 up to verse 13. And now he continues with this prayer in verses 14 through 21. There's actually two prayers in the book of Ephesians that, that Paul records And I love this final section here in chapter 3 because it's a prayer from the heart of Paul for his church. There are two prayers that Ephesus records uh, Paul praying for this church. The first one is found in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. In that prayer, if you look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul is praying for spiritual enlightenment, that the eyes of our understanding would be open, that we would truly understand this incredible truth of the gospel. If the gospel is boring to us, it's because we have not really, really looked at it. If these theological truths don't stir us every time, it's because we have an assumption that we have it all in the bag. There's so much more here. We'll spend the rest of our lives unfolding it. And so Paul prays for this spiritual enlightenment. God, open their eyes to who you are, to what you've done, to what you are doing in and through them. And then he prays this prayer. So he prays for spiritual enlightenment in chapter 1. But what he prays for here at the end of chapter 3 is he prays for spiritual divine enablement. He prays for enlightenment, and then he prays for enablement. He prays that they would see it, and then he prays that they would live it. Which I love, because this prayer transitions us right into the living it out in chapters 4 through 6. And so Paul prays that the church of Ephesus would realize the power that is available to them and that resides within them in the inner man. This is a spiritual power that speaks to the inner man. Look at verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. The core focus of our ministry is a ministration, is a ministry to the inner man of humanity to reach their soul, to reach, to see their spirit born again, to strengthen their spiritual man as they live out the Christian life. And so Paul says, I want you to understand this this power of Christ working in and through you, that you would be empowered with might by a spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. This power has the ability to transform the inner man. This power would be evidenced in their ability to love one another and to love God. This power had already transformed one-third of the city and made them a part of this mysterious unveiling of this new organism called the church, both made up of Jew and Gentile. And now Paul says, listen, I want you to understand the power that is at work in you. How many Christians today walk around living a life of defeat, not realizing what God has said, that we are more than conquerors? Oh, yeah, well, that's kind of pie in the sky. That's way out there. That's good for someday way down the road. No, you're more than conquerors right now. Jericho has already been given into your hand. When you finally realize that the captain of the Lord's host that Joshua encountered in Joshua 5 and 6 is actually now living within you, no wall is too big. No obstacle is too great. The power that we have through Christ. And of course he ends with this expressive, overjoyed verbiage. I mean, Paul just had a way of just bursting forth in praise. Look at verses 20 and 21. I happen to imagine that as after he wrote this, he just raises his hands, as many of the Jews did in their worship at that time. He raised his hands and he thanked the God of heaven. He says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. That's the same power that rose Christ from the dead. That power moves the church forward. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What an incredible passage. A church that had great potential. They were in a place of great potential. They were a people of great potential. A third of them had been saved. And Paul says, listen, you'll realize your potential if you do not forget your position in Christ. If you do not forget your purpose for Christ. And if you do not forget the power that you have in Christ. But Revelation chapter 2 We pick up the story of Ephesus again, don't we? Decades later, we hear about the church of Ephesus again. Jesus says, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not. I mean, this church had doctrinal purity. This church had moral purity. This church could spot a false teacher. They had found them liars. They, and has borne and has patience for my namesake and has labored, and catch this, and has not fainted. Didn't Paul say, hey, don't faint in my struggles for you? Back in verse 13, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations. They hadn't fainted. But we know the next verse, don't we? The next verse says this, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love. If you study the history of the church of Ephesus, what you'll find is by the 200, by by 200 A.D., The church was wholly given over to pagan Roman Catholicism. By that point, the church only existed for about 100 and 
140 years. And then their candlestick was removed. Their influence, their testimony in that world at that time, it was removed after that. You don't hear about the church of Ephesus again after, the two, after early 200s AD. Why? They had great potential. <laughs> they had great potential. But somewhere along the way, they lost their focus. They lost their focus on who they really were in Christ, what their true purpose was in this world, and the power that resided in them. So church family, that is a challenge to us. We, we are no different than Ephesus in the sense that we've got incredible potential within us. But may we take this as a warning. We can be focused in all these places, but we can still miss the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. What's that last thought, guys? Have it up there. Or did I skip it? The final sentence or two before the end. Ephesus was a church with an amazing history and incredible opportunity. They had every blessing in Christ to see effective ministry potential realized and God's name glorified. But we know how the church ended. May that not be said of us. You know, our church has been around now for 118 years. I hope that our church lasts longer than Ephesus. It will as we remember our position, we remember our purpose, and we remember the power that is available to us as we live and follow Jesus. Let's pray.